Welcome to Beyond the Breakwater, where just beyond the crashing waves of fear, discomfort, and doubt lies the greatest potential for life transformation. We want to guide you into the open waters where the calculated risk you take becomes the turning point for you or your organization to thrive. So drop your anchors and prepare for departure in this week's episode of Beyond the Breakwater. Welcome to episode seven of Beyond the Breakwater. I am Lindsay Smokovitz, and with me today and always is Ed. Good to see you, Lindsay. Yeah. Always good to be here. Yes, it's so exciting. Um, so we've been doing this, like I said, for seven episodes. If listeners are tuning in on anywhere they listen to podcasts, whether that's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, just know that you can also see where we're streaming from. So we're available on YouTube. You can go ahead and head there. And we're on Facebook and Instagram. So you can find us there and stay up to date with any statistics we're sharing from podcasts, um, any type of episodes coming up. Um, So go ahead and follow us there. Help us share the content because everything that we are talking about in this podcast, we really believe in. And we just really hope that churches, businesses, individuals would all hear that as well. So you can help us out by following along, subscribing, liking our channel. So today um, we are going to be talking about American history and social dilemmas. So the last couple podcasts we've been talking about um, giving and what that looks like, giving things for free, when not to give things for free, talking about never give something for free if someone can do it for themselves. Um, So it's kind of been a little bit messy in the last couple years of like, well, shoot, when do we give? When do we not give? And I think in order to see where that has come from, we have to look back, which is why today we're talking about the American history and social dilemmas. So yeah, Ed, how far back are we going? Are we going 10 years, 20 years, five years? How far back? Yeah, Lindsay, um, we're going to go back a little bit further than that, which I'll talk about in just a moment. I hope nobody checks out um, because anytime you talk about history, it's like, what does it have to do with today? And I would tell you that um, if we don't understand how we got where we are, uh, we'll never understand the way out. Uh, we'll never understand how to do it differently. And I think because we're so saturated, you know, we, you and I have talked about this, that it's almost like uh, trying to explain water to a fish. Um, you'll never understand. Unless you take the fish out of the water, then they understand there's something different. Then you can put them back into the water. So really what we're going to be doing is we're going to take the listeners on a journey with us Um, going back, not 10 years, not 20 years, uh, we're going to go all the way back 130 years. 130 years? So you are what, like 20? Yes, thanks a lot. (laughs) Uh, No, no, not even a glimmer yet. And uh, it goes back a long ways. It goes back to the 1990s. And I've been reading this amazing book. And um, if nobody's ever read this book, it's called The Tragedy of American Compassion by Marvin Olosky. And I read it through once, and I was so astounded. Uh, I've gone back and reread it over and over. Uh, I've taken notes on it because, because it really helps me today to understand how to do ministry today in a church, in a community. Um, but again, we've talked about this. It's not just for the church and agencies. It's for businesses. How do you work with the people in our communities? Um, so let me take you back for a moment. Uh, let's talk about the, you won't recognize this from the 1990s. This is the church of the 1990s. Here's a couple excerpts. One analysis of activity among 112 Protestant churches in Manhattan and the Bronx alone 
showed that 397 social agencies were run by the churches, including 48 individual schools, 45 libraries, 44 sewing schools, 40 kindergartners, kindergartens, 29 small sun savings banks and loan associations, 21 employment offices, 20 gymnasiums and swimming pools, eight medical dispensaries, seven full-day nurseries, four lodging houses. There were also dozens of laundries, night schools, cooking schools, as well as legal aid society, a medical aid society, a bowling alley, a billiard room, two wood yards, and two low-cost coal clubs. The church set up a medical clinic that served nearly 8,000 patients and provided over 13,000 prescriptions with 90% of the recipients paying small amounts. Hmm. Let's just start there. Did they leave anything out? Like, that uh, was a lot. I don't know. If I kept reading for you, I think you'd be surprised at all the other things that they were doing because of what they were doing as well as they wanted to teach people how to do carpentry, how yeah. to how to do sewing. Real quick, Ed, you said this was in the 1990s or 1890s? My bad. I did say 1990s. Okay. I just 1890s. To, okay. This was, was like, the 1890s. Okay. And I think it's really crazy when you go back that far and realize that this is what the church of that day was, that they were doing loans, they were banks, they were insurance companies, and they were doing all of this through the churches into the community. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's uh, the more you read about it, it's just astounding because I'm like, wow, we don't see churches doing that at all today. Mm-hmm. I mean, at all. I've, I don't think I've ever encountered a church that's doing something like this until now. And so... That kind of begged the question, like, well, how did we get from there, because this is so amazing, to today? We're just handing things out. People mm-hmm. come in the church and we just say, here, I'll pay your rent for you. Yeah. Um, where's the training schools? Where's the help for people to get out? Yeah. Um, and I think there was one really key thing from the 1890s that I walked away with. Anytime somebody came for help, the goal was life change. The goal was if you're coming to me for help, then I'm going to give you a skill, a career, tools. I'm going to give you something and train you so that you will never have to come back again. So we, they met people right where they were, mm. but they never left them where they were. They met them where they were, gave them the skills to say, have a good life. And then the people would actually come back to serve and to help other people. And that's how they did it. And mm. if somebody came and just said, here I am um, with a handout, they would say, see ya. So was it not working? Like, why did they shift from that model? Yeah, well, actually, it was working amazing. Um, but all good things sometimes um, go off the tracks. And what happened was, uh, now we got to go into the 1900s. Uh, 1911 actually was one of the uh, most important times uh, in the history of our nation. Because there was a lot of moms that were single, they were either uh, widowed um, early on. Um, they were um, uh, their husbands had abandoned them. They were in prison, or their husbands had died, and so there was a lot of children, uh, a lot of children that were in poverty. Um, not all that different from today. And so, 1911, what the states did, the first state was Illinois, 1911, and they came up with something called the Mother's Pension. I don't know about you, I never heard of it. Nope. Um, and if anybody wants to hear more, just look up Mother's Pension, 1911, and you can actually read all about it. And you can find out more about how much they would do. So let me just read an excerpt from, 
from past. This is 1911. Mother's pensions, also referred to as mother's aid or widow's aid, were cash payments distributed to impoverished single moms in the United States. Mother's pensions were long-term cash provisions to impoverished single moms. Payments were generally inadequate to cover the living expenses. That's interesting. We'll come back to that. Nearly every state had a maximum allowable allowance ranging from $9 to $15 a month, approximately today, $120 to $275. For the first child, then $4 to $10 for any additional children. As a consequence of the low payments, mothers receiving mothers' pensions tended to work outside of the home, despite the intention of many reformers that mothers' pensions would enable mothers to stay out of the workforce. Okay, so here's the shift. The states started to give moms money to stay home, but it wasn't enough. So in order to supplement the extra income, then they had to go out and work. And that was kind of like, oh, by design, they wanted them to be able to stay home and raise the kids, but they couldn't live off of it. So, Were there any qualifications that would prevent them from receiving payments, like if they had a job that was making a lot of money? Would they lose it, or could they work while also receiving this this money, no, no parameters? Well, they had to be in a position where they were at home with the kids because their husband was gone. Mm. Um, I mean, single moms um, who were not married um, was not a normalcy at the time. So a lot of times it would be like somebody who's, you know, married, um, the husband runs off um, or is killed um, or um, divorce happens. Um, and suddenly she had no breadwinner. And that was the real key. So you had to be in that situation in order to qualify. So not everybody qualified for this. And that started in 1911 with Illinois. But then really quickly, over the next eight years, it was staggering. Um, all the states started jumping in on this. Mm -hmm. And then within about 19 years, all the states except for four states were giving money to moms. So did they see it help or what happened? What was the result of that? Well, the result is that actually is that the federal government jumped in. So this is about 10 years later, the federal government in, came in and actually started giving out money. That was the first time the federal government had ever given direct aid to anybody. Mm -hmm. And so it was um, under President Taft, and uh, he actually had signed a bill um, so that children could start receiving federal dollars. And that, was, that opened the door. Then you started to see a flurry of activity, and there was a shift. Here was a shift taking place. Like, let's get away from churches. Uh, let's go into more let the government. Um, and where that really took root is once we hit the Great Depression. Because once the Great Depression happened, about 400 agencies closed in America, big agencies. Um, and so now the government was the primary aid. Um, so quick question on yeah. that. I don't know if you know this answer, but... At that time, what did the church look like when the government started giving money out for the very first time? Do you know the church's response? Uh, they were being squeezed out, and they weren't welcome as much to do the aid. I think there was still a lot of churches that were doing work, but I think now it was like you've got the government providing aid and you had churches providing aid. Mm -hmm. But here's what happened. This was the major shift. Remember what the churches were doing in 1890? We'll give you a job. We'll give you a career. We'll give you these things. But they started with moms and kids who weren't looking for careers. 
And then when we hit the Great Depression and all these agencies closed, uh, jobs weren't available. So these churches couldn't provide jobs. So a lot of them just kind of went out of business because we can't provide those things. The government began to hand out aid, a lot of aid. Uh, new agencies came along, like the Federal Emergency Relief um, Administration came in. Uh, that was under FDR. And pretty soon, people started to rely on the federal government and on state governments just to live and survive on a daily basis. And churches were not able to provide. And people, here's the hard part, are people looking for a job or would they rather have the money? I'd rather have the money. <laughs> and guess what we're having trouble with today? You know, like I know when people come to us, so let's just bring it into today. You know, when people come to us and say, hey, you know, I need help with my rent. And I say, would you like a job? And they're like, no, I want the money. I don't want a job. Mm-hmm. And we're, we have the same dilemma today because there is an option to get it without a job, without responsibility, that people can actually do it. Like, mm-hmm. give me some money, but I don't want any strings attached to it. Mm-hmm. And isn't it interesting? A hundred years later, when this is all introduced, we're still struggling with the very same thing today. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it sounds like government started giving stuff out, get, started giving money out. So the church, why like double, double down when the government is providing it? Right. So maybe they, they pulled back and right. stopped they doing that. They did pull that. back. And the Great Depression really, really stopped the churches from doing what they were doing. And the government was really needed. But but FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, wrote this, which I think is classic. In uh, November 1933, he said, when any man or woman goes on a dole, meaning a handout, something happens to them mentally, and the quicker they're taken off the dole, the better it is for them for the rest of their lives. And I'm like, he knew it. But it's interesting that two years into his administration, he also started Social Security. Mm. And that was a safety net. And it was never designed for like retirement at the beginning. It was really designed to take care of kids. So, I mean, it was very well-meaning. But we know that any good thing that was well-meaning quickly goes south. And that's actually what happened. Um, so there was that that Federal Emergency Relief Administration, the Social Security Act, all happened in 1934, 1935. Um, but here's what started to happen. There was an attitude change. And I think this is this matters today. This was the attitude change. It was the government owes me. And this was the saying of the time. The government is more reliable than an unemployed husband. Wow. I think that's one of the, I want to read that again because I think that kind of captures what was going on in the Great Depression. Government was more reliable than an unemployed husband. So starting in 1935, there's three subtle changes that happen that now they're full full blown. Here's the three changes. One, personal responsibility was lost. So I'm no longer responsible for my situation. I'm the victim of a system. Hmm. We see so that a lot today. That You hear that a lot, that I'm not responsible for my own actions. I'm not responsible for my situation. You know, somebody else is responsible. That's the first shift. Second shift that happened is that there was no longer personal contact for aid, that you no longer had to go sit down with somebody and say, hey, what's going on in your life? You know, why do you need, why do you need help? 
And what can we do to get you out of this situation so that you're never back in this situation? Now it just became, you showed up, you got food, and off the do- out the door you went. No more contact, no more personal contact. Um, the third thing uh, that happened um, is that it was almost like a new social order that allowed people to start living off of the government. That was never the intention. It was only for those who were incapable of being breadwinners, because if you've got little kids at home, how are you going to work and provide for your kids? So this is where that mother's pension came in. But the shift was, starting in the 30s, is that I'm an able-bodied person, but if I play my cards right, I can start to live off the government instead of working. And that was the subtle shift that started to take place. So all this was in the 30s. Now, we got to scan a little ahead. So the next 25 years was really just more of all of this going on. And it brings us to another another era after Kennedy died, was assassinated, and Linda B. Johnson came into uh, the presidency. Uh, there was a war going on. I don't mean the Vietnam War, because that was also going on. But there was a war going on against poverty. I think for the church today to understand that this was 70 years ago, 60 years ago, um, to understand that there was a war to take on poverty with one goal. This was Linda B. Johnson's goal. We want to eradicate poverty once and for all so that we would never have a poor person ever again. And it sounded great. And so the whole nation kind of got behind this thing, like, wow, this is amazing. But it had one faulty assumption. And I think as the church, we'll appreciate why it was so faulty is that human nature is in, by nature, good. Humanity is good by nature. And that's they will, the assumption. That's the assumption. And they will always make the right decision. They'll always do the best thing. Now, I, I see you smiling. <laughs> I wish I could say that. <laughs> because I, I think we all want that to be true. Mm-hmm. But you know what it doesn't account for? I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. And we're messed up and our lives got messed up and we're broken people and we're not going to make the right decision. Mm-hmm. And if you gave me all the material good goods in the world, it doesn't mean I'm going to make a right choice. I'm probably going to mess it up. Give somebody lottery winnings. How many times do we see somebody win the lottery and it completely ruins their life? Yeah. See, did it really raise them up out of poverty? Or did it actually just destroy their life because you gave them all this material goods? So see, we have examples of it with the lottery. But if you go back to the 60s, what the goal was is the government should give everybody everything they needed. So what do you mean going back to when you said there was a war on poverty? Was there someone in disagreement of how Lyndon B. Johnson wanted to eradicate poverty or what was the war or tension? Well, the tension was we're watching all these people that were now living off of the government and it was getting they were getting poor and and the whole societal issues of poverty. So so if by policy we can give people enough material goods, they would get out of it. Okay, here's what I mean. Let me give you a couple examples of this, okay? So under Linda B. Johnson's administration, he started Medicare for seniors, Medicaid 
for children. It wasn't for, for adults. It was for children who needed health care. But then as time went on, anybody who was making under a certain threshold of money got Medicaid insurance. Head Start preschool libraries. The government was purchasing textbooks, special ed services, Housing and Urban Development Act of 1965, um, rent subsidy. See, if you think about all these things that are so common today, they weren't they weren't before 1965. They weren't mm-hmm. in existence. So when he started all of these things, it was with the intention of great, now we're giving everybody everything they need, they're going to make the right decision. We'll never have a poor person in America ever again because they're going to be living off the government, if you will, but they're going to have enough that they're always going to do the right thing. By 1970, it was a complete failure. Not these programs, but they realized the assumption of giving people enough material goods would raise them out of poverty didn't work. So what had happened? What was the metric or the, the, the means that they decided, shoot, this, this failed? I don't know if I could give you the metric, but I would give you kind of what happened. Instead of eliminating poverty, it became like a death grip and it immobilized the poor. What does that mean? It means that the poor no longer had the means to get out of poverty. That's the key. Mm-hmm. And why? Because if, if you're getting approximately 85% of your needs met with food stamps, rent subsidy, Medicare insurance, or Medicaid insurance, if you're getting 85% of your needs met, and then somebody came to you and an employer said, how would you like to work for 40 hours? And you're like, wait, work 40 hours to get 100% or do nothing for 85%. So it's you're like telling me I'm going to work 40, per, 40 hours mm-hmm. for only an additional 15% more than I currently have. And you know what people said? I'll stick with no the thanks. 85. I'll stick with 85. And what happened was now there was no way to get them out of that. And, and so now it almost like imploded So now you have people that are like, why would I want to work for 15% more? I'm really content. And that was the biggest change that we realized in about 1970. So that was 53 years ago Mm. that people said they weren't willing to raise up themselves out of poverty. And I think where this gets really hard, it gets really hard for churches because the goal of the church should be life change. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what Jesus came to do? If Jesus came into our life in order to bring change in our life, and he wants us to live differently. And then I know we talked about this last time, but God worked for six days and then rested on the seventh and told us, go do the same. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Take one day off was God's mandate. Well, if there's a mandate to take one day off, what's the other mandate? Work six days. Work. He gave Adam a job. That was the very first thing that he did. What is he? 
put him in charge over the the land and the sea and the birds. Right. The animals. And, right. Yeah. God didn't give him the handout. He gave him the job and said, go take care of my creation. Mm-hmm. Before sin had entered the world. Yes. And after sin happened, he just said, it's going to be a lot harder. Mm-hmm. But still, he didn't take away the job. He said, this is what I want you to do. Take care of my creation. So now you have this really, I think you got the biggest dilemma that we've ever had. Well, I can live off of the government and get about 80% of my needs met and not work. Or I can fulfill my God-given calling to fulfill my purpose in life. God has a purpose and a plan for me, and it's to be productive and to take care of his creation and to do something with our life and have meaning and have purpose and to follow those dreams that God put on our heart. And I think now we're in this dilemma of, How do we navigate through? So now this is where I know some people may not like my conclusion. The church should be in a life-changing ministry. And I don't think that's radical. Mm -hmm. I think when people come to church and we're teaching them about Jesus, what are we hoping for? Life change. We're hoping for them to, to receive Jesus and then to all of a sudden walk away and go, my life has to change now. Mm -hmm. And that's the hope. But you see the mixed message If somebody comes to us for material goods, I'm hungry. Okay, here's food. We're just going to hand it to you. Where's the life change? Okay, so here's the hard part for churches. When you're giving a handout, you're participating in a welfare program. Mm -hmm. Churches are in welfare. As I read through the scriptures, that's not what I see God doing. I see God saying, calling us out, Mm -hmm. calling us to new action, calling us to follow him, called us to work. Yeah. He meets us where we're at, but he doesn't leave us there. That's the key. God will always meet us in our brokenness. God will always meet us right where we are. And he shows grace and he shows love. And then what does he do? change. Mm. You know, people that were caught in sin, he would say, go, sin no more, change, do something different. God's always calling us to life change. So can you relate this back to beyond the breakwater in that analogy? Yeah, I think the church has to be really creative. Because if the church isn't creative, like when people come, um, Provide the opportunity for them to do it for themselves. That's the change agent that the church needs to be today. That's different. Okay, that's to be on a breakwater. That's different thinking. I mean, Lindsay, that's not, um, let's do it the way we've always done it. Let's just have a committee that decides how much money we're going to give to people this month and then handing all the the money because now we're just doing welfare. But how do we sit down with a person and say, what do you need to change your life? What are the barriers that you have? Do you have transportation issues? Let's help you with transportation. Do you have health issues? How do we help you with health? How do we help you change your own life? And the church, I think, this is where I love what we're doing. The church is in the best place to help with change. But we don't force anybody to change. We just provide, here's how I like to see it. When somebody comes to us, we're going to give them a stepping stone. We don't give them a sandwich. We give them a stepping stone. 
And then when they take that stepping stone, and this would be an example, here's a broom. Go sweep, go clean. Here's a vacuum cleaner. Here's a lawnmower. Go cut the lawn outside. And when you give people a chance to do it for themselves, those are the ones that are changing their life. And here's the other thing that I know we've talked about previous. But I think when the church is just participating in the welfare program, there's a big difference between God and the government. Huge. The government isn't, doesn't really care about your character. That's not a slam. That's just a fact. Mm-hmm. But God really cares about our character. So if you're coming to the church and I'm robbing you of your dignity by giving you something for free, then I'm, I'm actually hurting your character. I'm attacking your character by giving you something for free. Now, again, let me just refresh. There's some people that are incapable of providing for themselves, completely incapable. Like this is why mother's pension happened. They were not capable. That's when the church should be giving it out to people that can't provide for themselves. But whenever we give to somebody who can't provide for themselves, we're really attacking their character, robbing them of their dignity, and we're doing it all in the name of Jesus. And that's where I think the church, my opinion, I think the church is in the wrong. The church should be valuing every person created in the image of God and should be protecting their their character, protecting their dignity, and helping them to do what God said. God said to Adam, go take care of the garden. And then you get to eat the fruit of it. Isn't that God's charge to us? Yeah, that's really good. And it just reminds me of like God's directive of like, love God and love your neighbor. And there wasn't any contingency on that. Not love your neighbor if. Right. You know, it's just love your neighbor. Don't love your neighbor if they come to know Christ or if they join a small group or if they sit in your church every week. Just love your neighbor. And that's a great way to put it. Love your neighbor. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. And I think this is where we confuse it in the church. Does love mean I hand it to you at the cost of your character, at the cost of your dignity? Or do I love you by giving you a broom? Right. Yeah, that's really good. This has been a really interesting podcast. Before we wrap up, Ed, what can the listeners do as a takeaway? I would go get that book. Which book is it again? Uh, it's <laughs> The Tragedy of American Compassion by Marvin Olosky. Uh, I would devour the book. Uh, because I think it really helps to understand how did we get where we are. And if somebody's looking to change, see, isn't that what the church is about, change? Maybe the change should start with the church. And maybe we should read the book and say, God, how do you want me to change so that I can help others to change? So get the book. If you're not going to get the book, go back and look up Mother's Pension online. Look up FDR and learn about all the new things from the New Deal. Look up Linda B. Johnson, The Great Society, and study those. And I think it might give people the insight to say, wow, all we're doing is we're like doing the same thing as the government. And I think God has called the church to be different than the government. Yeah, that's great. All right. Thanks, Ed, for all your your wisdom and and research and expertise today. Um, We'll catch everyone next week. 
Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Beyond the Breakwater, a podcast of Elevate Community Ministries. Don't let the conversation stop here. You can email us at hello at beyondthebreakwater.org. We would love to chat with you, answer questions, plan a visit, and help you take your next step. We'll see you next week.